Stand together and let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 27. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Acts together. We come to the latter half of chapter 27. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, you'll be fairly lost this morning without one because of the amount of uh, territory we're going to cover. Just wave to these guys that are coming up the aisles with Bibles and they'll put one in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd like to make that Bible a gift to you today. Just a couple of verses in, uh, by way of uh, getting started here. Chapter 27, verse 43. But the centurion, Julius, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose of killing the prisoners and commanded that those who should swim, who could swim, should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and uh, some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. And land meant a lot to those folks at this particular point in time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and we thank you for how it speaks to the broad diversity of life and even the confusion that we face, the difficulty that we face, the difficulty that we could never imagine we would face, even in the midst of your will and your plan for our lives. And we pray that you would use your word this morning to help bring perspective to those kind of seasons that we're in the middle of today or seasons that are coming in our future, Lord, where we'll want this foundation firmly laid within our lives. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the access that we have to your throne. We thank you for where our prayers go right now. We thank you for where our praise has gone. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to worship you. And we thank you for what we have been able to speak to you this morning. And now, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word that is out, going to outlive the heavens and the earth. Thank you for the foundation that it is within our lives. Speak to us from your throne. Speak to us as a church. Speak to us individually this morning, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We're coming now, of course, very near to the end of our study in the book of Acts, and uh, the events are moving very, very rapidly as we make our way to the end, and there's so many things that are compressed together, and all of them important, but not every one of them is something that you're going to teach an entire Sunday morning uh, Bible study related to them, or we would never get uh, conclude the book of Acts. And so, we want to kind of look at the overarching theme of what's happening in these final couple of chapters and then pull out some uh, practical lessons related to our, uh, our lives this morning as, as an emphasis, very much as we did last week for me to read and, and uh, kind of exposit uh, the verses and then bring some applications out of them at the end of our time. We remember that the Apostle Paul is making his way from the city of Caesarea in Roman custody to uh, Rome, where he is going to stand trial before uh, Caesar Nero himself. He is in the, Roman, he is in the uh, custody of a Roman centurion by the name of, of Julius, and he is on this ship that is making its way from uh, Caesarea to, uh, to Rome, and uh, he's accompanied by uh, Julius, who's, who is looking to deliver him uh, to Rome. Julius probably has a number of soldiers that have been uh, uh, assigned to him for this very task. Uh, Paul is also accompanied by Christians. Dr. Luke is with him. Aristarchus is with him uh, as well. Ultimately, the full number of people that are going to end up on the larger boat that they end up on, and as a part of the passage we're looking at this morning, is going to number, including Paul, 276 persons. Not just the prisoners, not just the Roman guard, but also a crew and a large number of, of passengers who had probably paid uh, to get on the ship to make their way uh, to Rome. They're sailing late in the uh, season, late in the fall, 
and it's a time where it was, and they knew that it was dangerous to sail on the Mediterranean Sea at that time uh, in the ancient world. They pressed their luck, so to speak, in trying to make uh, one kind of final move before the uh, official onset of winter. They were in a harbor uh, known as Fair Haven on the island of Crete, and uh, they wanted to get into a superior harbor in order to hunker down for the winter, uh, a harbor about 40 miles away by sea at a city called Phoenix. And uh, during that 40-mile journey that should have just taken a matter of hours, they got swept up in a great storm known as Eurocladin. And uh, in the course of being in the midst of this storm, uh, after long days of being thrown about on the ship by the storm, everyone on shore lost complete hope that any of them would survive uh, this, uh, this storm and, and the shipwreck that surely was going to come. At that particular point in time, God and His amazing love and His beautiful grace, He sends an angelic messenger to Paul in the night and speaks to him a message for Paul, but then also for all of the passengers on the ship. He encouraged Paul not to be afraid. He reminded Paul of his promise that Paul was going to make his way to Rome and, and reminded him that that promise would be kept. He would ultimately stand before Caesar in Rome. And then God also revealed to Paul that while their current voyage that they were on was going to end in shipwreck, the destruction of the ship, that all 276 people on board would ultimately uh, survive. And Paul then shared that uh, revelation, and of course, it was a tremendous encouragement to everybody on board. And so, we pick it up now, chapter 27, verse 27. Now, when the 14th night had come, now, it's one thing to read 14th night on a page in a Bible in an air-conditioned room uh, and not to be in the midst of the storm, but 14 nights in the middle of the storm that's been described here, day and night, the ferocity of the storm. That's a long time. It takes a while to count to 14. Uh, nobody wants to be in a storm like this for an hour if it just comes out uh, of the west or the east and hits you, and then it's gone. This is a very, very long uh, period of time. And, they, and, and so, when the 14 night had come, as they were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, uh, it's called the Adriatic Sea by Luke here because that's what that section of the Mediterranean was known as in those days. Today, that section is uh, known to us as the Mediterranean Sea, and that's the sea that they were on. At about midnight, so we're in the middle of the night here, they can't see, there's no sun, obviously, but there's no moon, there's no stars, there's no light. The storm continues to uh, beat upon them. At about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. The way they would have understood that is they would have begun to hear waves and waves crashing on some kind of a land mass. And so they realize, all right, Paul has said what he has said. We're going to shipwreck. Now we're approaching uh, a land mass. And so they then took some soundings to determine what was the depth of the ocean that they were in at the moment. Uh, is there approaching this land? How, uh, how close are they to it? They took some soundings, and they found the, in their first sounding, they found it to be 20 fathoms. A fathom is a distance of about six feet. It was in the ancient world the distance, a typical distance between uh, a man's uh, fingers with his arms stretched out. So it's not that accurate of a measurement depending on the size of a person, but it was meant to indicate about six feet. And so as they make this first sounding, they realize the depth of the ocean that they're in at this point in time is 120 feet. They wait a little longer, and they uh, go a little bit further, and they take another sounding, and they found uh, that the, the depth of the sea to be 15 fathoms, 90 feet. And so they realize, all right, we're moving very quickly into shallower water here, and uh, if we don't do something, we will shipwreck uh, upon, this, uh, upon this island. We're uh, we're drawing closer and closer to land. And there was a fear related to that in verse 29. Then, fearing lest we should be run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So they had one great fear. It'd be the fear anybody would have on a ship like that, is that they were going to 
run aground, uh, not on a nice smooth beach, but upon the rocks. I think most of us have been to a beach, I'm sure, uh, living in California. If you live in California, you've never been to a beach. I don't know what to say about you. Uh, but uh, I don't know. okay, so I won't develop that. But uh, we all know that when you go to a beach, there are sections of a beach that are sandy, but the overwhelming majority of the coastline of, uh, of most of the world is not a nice sandy beach. It's, it's a rocky coastline, and that's what they're concerned about is that they, if they go to shore, they're not going to find a nice beach waiting for them. This isn't a Hollywood movie, but that they're going to be dashed upon the rocks. Um, I like beaches, but whenever we go over to Carmel or wherever we might go, I always walk further along and get along the rocks. And when you see those waves, just the power. I love the power of the ocean. That's what I like to watch about it. And, um, and so those waves come in, and they pound upon those rocks. And you just think to yourself, even apart from a story like this, what would happen if a ship came in and hit those rocks? It'd be dashed to pieces. The power of the waves, not talking about a nice 72 degrees in Carmel or, or uh, Pacific Grove or something like that, but a middle of a storm like this. And if you've ever stood on a shore and looked down at these rocks and thought, Wow, if a person ever fell down this cliff and got into that water and those waves just pounded them up against those rocks, they'd have no hope of survival. Well, it's one thing to kind of formulate those thoughts in your mind on a trip to the California coast. It's another thing when you're on a ship and this be can become your reality in just a matter of hours. And this was their fear, and this is exactly what uh, they were facing. So they dropped four anchors uh, from the stern of the boat. And uh, the stern is the rear of the boat. And so the ship, the, the boat is now, its bow, its front is aimed toward uh, the shore. They've dropped anchors now so the ship can stop moving toward whatever this landmass is and yet be properly uh, directed for uh, running itself up, up upon the land. And then they did what I think anyone would be doing, and that is that they prayed for day to come. Again, this is the middle of the night. No light, no moon, no stars. Uh, I think that a, a, a shipwreck under sunny skies in the middle of the day would be an awful thing to experience or to have facing. Imagine uh, in, in experiencing a shipwreck in the middle of the night where you can't see anything. And so they're praying now, help us not to shipwreck at night but the day will come that we can experience at least see what it is that we're in the middle of. And as the soldiers were seeking, uh, sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they let down the skiff onto the sea under the pretense of coming, uh, putting out anchors from the bow. So uh, here is the sailors, and I mean, how alarming is this? The sailors of the ship, they decide this, that they want to save their necks and they're going to abandon ship. They give the indication that they're going to the bow of the ship, the front of the ship, to put anchors there as well. But their intention is to lower the lifeboat or the tender boat and uh, jump in it and abandon ship to all of these prisoners and uh, Roman soldiers and a bunch of civilians that are on board. Uh, they're, they're just going to leave. I mean, it, it is something that we see all through history where when you get into a crisis, whether it's a crisis like this or there's a national crisis or a hurricane that is, you know, beating down upon Florida at this point in time or the one that just hit Harvey and, and so forth or the, you know, the storms that occur individually within our lives or within a smaller group of people at work or within a family. These kind of things always bring out the best in people and the worst in people. And we see, uh, we see it here. Uh, they're going to abandon ship. Paul somehow uh, notices it, and whether he, remember, he's got some experience in shipwreck, whether he notices this looks fishy or whether God gives him a revelation, we don't know. But uh, Paul then said to Julius the centurion and also to the other soldiers, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot uh, be saved. And then the soldiers cut away uh, the ropes of the skiff, and they let it uh, fall off. And so uh, Paul mentioned something to Julius, and everybody's listening to Paul at this particular point. He has tremendous authority on the ship, 
and, uh, and, and they cut the boat away. And the idea now is that we're, in, we're all in this together, and uh, the lives of the sailors would be saved in saving the lives of everyone else. I mean, we like to think that everyone would stay at their post out of some kind of nobility uh, or human conscience or whatever. Uh, but what they, now they realize these sailors have shown what their true colors are here it is purely self-survival and forget about everybody else. So they give them the kind of baser motivation, and that is uh, you survive as they survive. So make sure uh, that we, we survive. And then Paul, as he's uh, in this place, it's time as, as the sun is beginning to uh, come up and it's a, the day is about to dawn. It's a time for some encouragement from someone, and Paul is the candidate to deliver it. And he implored everybody on board. I mean, think about this, 276 people. It's quite a congregation. It's quite an audience there. They're all there. They're listening to what he has to say. And he implored them to take food, eat something. And, uh, and today, he said, is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Probably nobody's eaten anything for 14 days because if you've ever been seasick, I don't care what the food is. They can bring you steak and lobster. Uh, they can bring you uh, meatloaf. They can bring you cheesecake. They can bring you anything that you would normally, you know, scarf down. And, uh, but when you're seasick, you don't want to even see any food because you know if you eat it, um, you will retaste it in a very short order, and it's not worth the aggravation. So for 14 days, here they are. And you can lose a lot of weight in 14 days when you're not eating anything. A big day awaits them the next day. They've got to have strength to uh, swim in to the shore and so forth. And so Paul says, now you need some nourishment. Let's take it. Uh, this is the day we've been waiting for, and he encouraged them to eat. He said, therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the heads of any of you. Verse 34 is a very, very interesting verse in terms of the tension that we see all the way through the Bible in terms of God's providence or God's sovereignty, the fact that He's almighty and He, and he overrules everything and has the power to do everything. And then human responsibility. We've got this strange mixture of it. God has promised them that not one of them is going to die. Uh, Paul speaks about the fact that not one hair on their head is going to be lost here. That's the promise of God. And yet God speaks to them, uh, Paul speaks to them, and declares you need to take some food so you can be properly nourished to be able to make your way to shore depending on whatever the day holds. And so there's this funny kind of meshing and overlapping of, of God's providence, His, His authority on things, and then, but it's never to the neglect of us doing what we need to do and what is sanctified common sense within a situation. They shouldn't have all stayed under deck and just said, all right, God is just going to, he'll just have to do it however he wants. I'm famished, and it'll all have to be angels that he dispatches from heaven and delivers us on little clouds to uh, the island of Malta. No, there's a little overlap in both. We should, I think this has well been put, and I remember Pastor Chuck Smith saying it so often, we do our best and we commit the rest. And and we see that here in verse 34. And when he had said these things, it's one thing to speak, it's another thing to be an example, he then took bread and he gave thanks for the food. He prayed before the meal, and he prayed to God, his God, in the presence of all of them. Paul would later write to the church at Thessalonica, and one of the exhortations he would close one of those epistles with to us as Christians is that in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you. And in every situation, no matter how dark it is, how stormy it is, the shipwreck that is looming and all, there is always something to be thankful uh, for. And here Paul sees it. Here is the food they have the ability uh, to eat. He gives thanks to God uh, for it. He's following the model of Jesus in all of this. You remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 that he did with the five loaves and the two fish. 
and he took them, put them in his hands, and he prayed to God and thanked God the Father for them. And then he began to break, uh, break them and then to feed uh, the, the people. And Paul follows him in this. And when he had broken uh, the, the bread, he then began to eat. They followed his example. All were encouraged, and they also took bread for themselves. And then all there were 276 persons on the ship. There it is, in case you think I've been making the number up. And when they had eaten enough, they now lightened the ship, and they threw out the wheat into the sea. So far, it's been uh, advantageous to them to keep the wheat, the cargo that they were transporting to Rome, on board in order to give it some weight within uh, the severity of the storm. But now they want the ship to be light enough that they can somehow uh, rush it toward the shore and have it be light enough that it can land as close to the beach uh, as possible. And so out goes the wheat. And when it was day, so here the, the daylight is, is here, they did not recognize the land, uh, they, uh, they, and they observed a bay uh, with a beach. So they thought, all right, it's not, there's a beach here. That's fabulous. And in seeing that beach, uh, they decided that this was the beach that they planned to run the ship uh, on if possible. So there's this beach, it's in kind of a bay, two channels on either side, a narrow kind of opening, and they're going to try and run that thing as far as they can until it gets lodged upon sand and then a short distance to then make their way from the ship uh, to, uh, you know, terra firma. And that was the plan. And so they let the anchors, uh, let go of the anchors, let them, uh, left them in the sea, and meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail that they had held on to to the wind, and they made for shore. So now here it is. All right, everybody, you know, pray your last prayer to God. Here we go. This is the plan. And uh, they put everything in place to, to happen. But striking a place where the two seas met, they ran the ship aground. Oh, great. So the storm wasn't enough. The coming shipwreck isn't enough uh, on the beach, but now we've hit a sandbar. And, and so the, the prow or the, the front of the ship now comes in and it sticks itself right into the sand, immovable in the force with which they were moving. It sticks firmly, but then the stern, uh, the stern, uh, verse 41, was being broken up by the violence of the waves. Uh, the waves and the storm continues, and it begins to just pound upon the back of that ship, and it starts to disintegrate now. It starts to break apart, and, uh, you know, the, and again, it's one thing to read it on the page. It's one thing, another thing to be on the ship, and, the, and now we're stuck on this sandbar, and now the waves are breaking the, the ship apart, and we're a long ways away from shore, were a lot further away from shore than we wanted to be. And that's their circumstance. And so, the soldiers, they had a plan in all of this before the ship was broken to smithereens. Their plan was to kill the prisoners that had been uh, put in their custody, lest any of them should swim away and escape. Uh, and according to Roman law, in terms of uh, certainly the Roman military, if you were given a prisoner and they were put into your custody to be delivered from point A to point B, and you lost that prisoner, they escaped, then whatever the sentence was upon that prisoner, that sentence would then be meted out upon you as the one who was charged with their custody. And since virtually all of these prisoners were headed for uh, martyrdom or headed for uh, the, the gladiator games and, and so forth in, in Rome, they were almost all of them guilty of capital crime. So to lose a prisoner, the soldiers looked and said, if we lose them, they're, they're guilty of capital crime, uh, will be executed as a result of it, and so their plan was to kill them. But the centurion, and again, he's noble everywhere through the passage, as every centurion is, interestingly, in the Bible, as they're mentioned, wanting to save Paul, who would have been put to death if this other plan had continued, they kept them from 
Uh, he kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, meaning those who couldn't swim, uh, grab a hold of some boards and some parts of the ship. So, this is something, you know, the thing just keeps getting worse and worse depending on uh, who you are and what you know. The, most of us, we put ourselves on a ship like this or we put ourselves in a similar circumstance, and I suppose uh, virtually all of us, because of the day in which we live, have been taught to swim. So, we naturally assume everybody on that boat can swim. They can't. They can't. And there's no little water wings down below to get on these people that can't swim. There's a whole section of this, this group that do not know how to swim. And so the centurion takes charge, and he says, all of you can swim, start to make it for the shore. The rest of you grab anything that can float and paddle your way uh, toward the shore. And yet, despite, you know, the, the mess of all of it, wonderfully, and so it was that they all escaped safely uh, to land. And so, uh, they come and they uh, land there upon, uh, upon the beach, and how delighted they must have been uh, to, to hit land. I mean, you'd probably kiss the sand. I have a, a, a friend um, who went on a, a missions trip with me one time, and there were a number of us, but the two of us were on it as well, and we'd gone to a very exotic, kind of backward section of the world, and uh, it was a very demanding trip, and uh, went to a lot of kind of demanding places and so forth, and it was an eyeful for everyone. It was certainly an eyeful for him, and I remember when we returned to San Francisco International Airport, and we got through customs, he got down on his hands and knees, and he kissed the ground and declared, God bless America. And, uh, he, and it, Im it impacted himself in terms of the blessings of, of being a citizen of this country. Imagine here, they finally hit land. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a, a thing like this. I remember one time, the first time Karen and I went on a trip to Israel, we went with uh, Pastor Chuck's group, and uh, we were trying to land in Zurich. Uh, Chuck always went in, in, uh, in, in uh, the end of February, so still very much winter in Europe, and he did it because the rates were cheaper. And so we're coming into Zurich and hit the worst turbulence I've ever been on on a plane. And I mean, you're looking for those, where are those bags? I know those bags are here somewhere. And, and, uh, but one of the women who was sitting a couple rows over from us, uh, when we finally landed, she was so impacted by, by the turbulence, it took her five days uh, before she stopped feeling like she was in the middle of that kind of thing. So, this is, they're happy to hit, hit the ground and, and hit land here. Now, when they had escaped uh, from the shipwreck to shore, they found out that the island that they had landed on was Malta. So, it was about, uh, this, this storm has driven them about 500 miles in the course of uh, these 14 days. And the natives there, you, you can imagine 276 people coming out of the ocean. You don't see that every day. It's like a science fiction movie for the natives who were there. What in the world is this? And the condition that they're in, they're gaunt, their clothing soaked to the bone. The storm is, and the wind is blowing, and, and uh, the natives showed uh, them uh, unusual kindness. We, we think, well, what would, would they do? Well, they might show up with spears and bows and arrows and kill every one of them. I mean, it's, uh, the, the world is the Wild West in some parts of it, but these people were good people, and they understood the condition. Uh, the circumstances, and they were, they were good to them. When it talks about natives here, if you've got the old King James, it says, and the barbarians. Uh, and, and so, it's easy to look at this or look at the word natives and think, you know, they're kind of half-clothed people coming out of a jungle with spears and so forth. That's not what it's referring to. They're natives of Malta. Malta was part of the Roman Empire, very European. So, don't, you know, pick, correct the picture within, within your mind. And so, uh, the, the, in, the, in the Greek, and the reason the word is used is it's, is it's translated in the uh, old King James, uh, the Greeks love their language very much. They love their culture very much. And they loved their language so much that they considered all, the, all other languages uh, to be just noise in, in comparison. 
so uh, when they would listen to somebody who couldn't speak Greek and they'd speak in their native tongue, uh, to them it was just uh, somebody saying bar, 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 the way that we might say blah, 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 blah in comparison to Greek. And so they called them bar, bar, barbarians. And, uh, and it was somebody who was, uh, didn't know the language and was unsophisticated in terms of Greek culture. It was simply someone who didn't speak Greek. And so the natives, uh, in, as an expression of their kindness, they kindled a fire, which is the single greatest thing that you can get for people. I don't know if you've ever been, come out of an ocean or out of something where you're absolutely soaked to the bone. There's not a dry spot on your body. Uh, the, the rain is still pouring. It is November. It is winter. And, uh, and it's cold outside. The single greatest thing that you need is warmth. And so they kindled a fire and they made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, and this gives us one of these interesting insights into the Apostle Paul. There's always the, these fine uh, brush strokes in the portrait of him in the Scriptures. But he comes, he survives the, the, uh, the shipwreck. He's there. The fire is burning now. The Maltese people have got that going. But you've got to continue to feed it with brush and, and sticks and logs and so forth. And so he doesn't say, I'm an apostle. I don't do that kind of work. I'll be right over here sitting on a stone supervising. If you have any decisions that need to be made, you can come and talk with me. There's none of that in Paul. He immediately begins to do what everybody knows to be, needs to be done is whatever happens, that fire has to be kept alive. So he goes, finds the sticks. He finds the brush. And as he's taken this armful of brush and and sticks. Uh, he lays them on the fire. What he doesn't know is that there's a viper in the middle of all of it, a poisonous snake. It's a cold-blooded animal, so it's kind of in a winter stupor. Uh, but now Paul puts it directly over the fire now as the brush is being uh, put in there. The snake immediately wakes up. It lashes out at whatever it can uh, grab a hold of, the cause of what's happening uh, here, and it fastened on his hand. And the word fastened is interesting. There's a lot of people that don't like the miraculous of the Bible, so they try to explain it away and they say, well, Paul, you know, he really wasn't bit in a way that the snake broke the skin in any way. It was, it was some kind of explanation like this. No, by the time a snake fastens itself on you, it has broken the skin and it has inserted its venom. And so uh, it, it has happened with Paul. And when the natives were, uh, saw this, I mean, it obviously would get everybody's attention, when they saw the creature, and that's a good name for a snake, uh, and the spiders as well, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, uh, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, and that's not true at all, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. So, they look at the situation and they immediately conclude this, that Paul is snake bit now. And they conclude that he had to be a murderer and there was a, a kind of a logic that they went through related to all of this. It, it wasn't true that Paul was a murderer, uh, but they, uh, and so they said, well, he must be a murderer because he escaped death by sea. And what they're saying is, Neptune tried to kill him. Uh, the, god, uh, the ancient god of the sea tried to kill him at sea, was unsuccessful. He's now become, uh, you know, he's guilty of death in some ways. Obviously, doesn't have the favor of the gods. And, and now he comes to shore, and now the ancient goddess of justice and, 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 and um, uh, you know, kind of a fair play, righteousness. The, it, it comes into play in the, in the whole thing and uh, uh, named uh, Diki, and, the, and, the, and that's the word that's used there for, for justice, a reference to the ancient goddess of justice and revenge, and now she's the one that's going to take him out and kill him. Now, there is really something truly awful, I think, and it's a mark of both paganism, but it's also a mark of our flesh, and we can find it even, you know, kind of creeping into our own lives as, as Christians. 
where when we, when we see a massive misfortune or trial or storm or catastrophe fall upon a human life, uh, there's that tendency to think, well, what's wrong with them? Uh, that's never happened to me before. There must be something wrong with their life. There must be secret sin in their life. They must be something uh, secretly that nobody else sees, and somehow life and circumstances or karma or whatever is, is going to take them out, the uh, goddess of, of, of justice and revenge and, and so forth. And then when you see what happens and what they're under the weight of is they look at Paul and they say, all right, he has survived a storm. Number one, he has survived a shipwreck, number two, and then now he gets snake bit. And how often it is when we see someone, and none of it is true, it's not based in any reality at all, but we look at somebody and they get hit by this storm or misfortune, and then another one is right on its heels, and then another one is right on its heels as it happens with Paul, and that temptation to think there must be something wrong with them for something like this to be happening uh, in their lives. And to, and to believe that it's something that doesn't come into the minds of Christians uh, is, is to be naive about ourselves, I think, and then naive about the Bible. Remember Job when he was in that six months of disastrous trial in the Old Testament, and his friends come to him. Every one of them came with that attitude. Only bad things, ha bad things only happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. What in the world, what secret sin do you have in your life that all of these things would happen to you that have happened to you? And that's the attitude that they brought, and it, it comes from the flesh. You remember even the disciples in, in, during the ministry of Jesus where they come along and they're in the city of Jerusalem, and uh, as they're passing uh, uh, through the city with Jesus, they come upon a man who was blind uh, from birth, and the disciples declared, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was the teaching of the rabbis claiming to represent the God of the Bible in that day that taught if this kind of thing happened in a person's life, if a man or a woman was born blind, it was because there was either sin in their life from the womb or sin in the life of the parents. And this is how uh, closely we begin to, in our minds, uh, interconnect the idea that if something bad or a series of bad things happen, that suspicion begins to build that there must be something wrong with them. Uh, they must be some, there's something uh, that's wrong between them and God. And at the very moment when we find ourselves in these kind of trials, when we are needing the encouragement and the support of other people and of the body of Christ, then they begin to be met with kind of this distance or with this suspicion related to their lives. And, and so, it, it, it's, an, it's an awful curse. We see it in, in a full, uh, you know, full display here and something to be avoided within, within our lives. And so, uh, this was the conclusion that they came to, but Paul shook off the creature into the fire, and he suffered no harm. However, they continued to watch him, as, as all of us do when somebody's in a trial or a difficulty. However, they, uh, they were expecting, as they continued to watch him, that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. So, again, uh, some people say, well, the snake wasn't poisonous. Listen, they knew their snakes. They knew what snake bit him. These are the natives of, of Malta. And they realize when somebody like this gets bit, they swell up, and then they fall over and die. And they're waiting for Paul to swell up, and, and they're waiting for him uh, to, to die. But after they had looked and watched him for a long time, and they saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds, and they said that he was a god. Okay, well, it's a fickleness. Uh, nothing new under the sun in terms of the fickleness of uh, some audiences. I mean, in one step, they go from a murder uh, to God. And some people have no sense. There's nothing in between. It's either this or it's this. They know nothing. Could, it, could, could this in the middle possibly be the truth about this situation? Or, do you know anything about no, nuance? No. 
He's either a murderer or God. That's all. Leave me alone. And in that region, we're told, as it continues, there was an estate of the leading uh, citizen of the island, so he had wealth, he had an estate, and his name was Publius, who received us, and he, and he entertained us courteously for three days. And so, here's a man, another good man. And he's got the means, he's got an estate, he's got 276 people come to him that he somehow gets shelter for them, gives them food, because now they have to be uh, billeted, or they need to be, you know, we need to find a place for them to stay for the next three months before they can catch, you know, the next boat out toward uh, Rome. And he steps up, and, and while everybody's being transferred to a more permanent situation, he takes care of them. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery, and that's no fun. Uh, the, the, there is a, in that part of the world, in the ancient world, it was known as Maltese fever. They weren't very creative uh, in, 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 uh, in giving it a title, but that's the way it sometimes goes. And it was a, it was a uh, microorganism that came from goat's milk that a person would drink, and it would produce a, a fever, would pr produce a, a diarrhea, which is what this father is, is, uh, is enduring, and it would last in the ancient world. There's a vaccine for it today, but it would last anywhere between three months and, and uh, three years. A person could have it. So, uh, this guy's in a bad, he's in a bad place here. And, and so, it happened that the father is laying sick in this condition. Paul went into him, prayed. He laid his hands on him and healed him. It's interesting that Luke is a doctor who is with Paul, and God does not choose to bring this healing forth through uh, Dr. Luke. He is, he, he, for a reason, he picks Paul out, and he wants Paul to lay hands on him. He wants it to be a gift of healing, and he wants the attention drawn to Paul uh, so that Paul can then obviously point them uh, to God as a result, and so he is healed. And of course, when this was done, news of this spreads uh, far and wide. Everybody on the island who had a disease uh, then came to Paul. They were also healed, and as you might expect, uh, this produced an atmosphere of honor for Paul and, and Luke and Aristarchus. They, the people, the citizens of the island, they honored us in many ways. And so they took care of their needs for the three months that they were there before they continued their journey. And then when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. So remember, everybody on the shipwreck, they've lost everything. They don't have another uh, cl clothing. They don't have luggage. They don't have anything. And so these Maltese people then gave Paul and the others what they would need, Luke and Aristarchus, what they would need to continue uh, the, uh, the journey. Now, uh, some commentators, uh, you know, take note of the fact that in the record here, in a technical sense, there's no record of, of the Apostle Paul openly preaching the gospel. Uh, within, within the account uh, here, uh, or during his three-month stay uh, on Malta, and then they conclude that he didn't. And uh, I, I simply can't fathom that kind of a conclusion when you interpret uh, this passage, not only in the light of uh, chapter 27 and chapter 28, but in the light of, uh, of its full context, and that is the book of Acts uh, itself. I'm in full agreement with J. Vernon McGee's comments concerning this. He wrote, the question has been raised whether or not Paul preached the gospel uh, at Malta. There are those who believe that this is the one place where Paul did not preach. Uh, this is an instance where I think the Holy Spirit expects us to use ordinary common sense. Of course, he preached the gospel. By now, Dr. Luke expects us to know what Paul would do. And, uh, and I say uh, a hearty a, uh, amen uh, to that. To think that God would use, that Paul would know that God was using him uh, to heal the father of Publius, and then all of these other people around the island, and knowing full well that this was an opportunity to gain the attention of the citizens of the island to then preach the gospel to them, and that somehow Paul would at this point in his ministry falter and fail to do so, I don't think, it's not to know Paul at all as he's revealed uh, in the Scriptures. I do think it's also interesting to realize that today, 98% of the population of Malta identifies as Christian. 
And every year, the nation itself uh, celebrates the shipwreck of the Apostle Paul. Well, we know that Luke writes here and the Holy Spirit writes in terms of these uh, what we're reading here and read last week. He didn't provide it supremely to provide us with uh, kind of a, uh, an understanding of, of uh, ship faring in, in, in the ancient uh, world, but all of it's in the Bible here because it has something uh, to say to us as Christians. It has something to speak practically uh, to our lives uh, as Christians, to speak to us about the journey of our Christian life and our ministry uh, from, uh, from the Apostle Paul's life. And I'd like to just close this morning by uh, briefly uh, bringing out uh, a number of points. Most of us, I think, have heard uh, uh, the famous saying that is attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he wrote, life is a journey, uh, not a destination. It's a wonderful saying, and it's true in some respects, but it isn't entirely true. Because the fact of the matter is that life isn't merely a journey. Uh, it is, life is not a destination-free event. It is not a destination-free event in the course of the threescore and ten of our natural lives. In the course of our physical lives, the decisions that we make, the choices that we make, put us on paths, and those paths end in destinations. That happens within our lifetimes. Paul wrote to the Galatians, and he said, be, be not deceived. God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. But the fact of the matter is also that life is not a destination-free event in the eternal scheme of things either. Jesus plainly taught in the Sermon on the Mount, enter by the narrow gate, speaking of salvation, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few that find it. And Jesus is declaring at the end of each of our lives, uh, we end up in a destination that the path that we put on ourselves on uh, leads to. But the saying of, of Mr. Emerson, it does remind us of the fact that the overwhelming majority of life is spent on the journey, and how it is that God gives us a promise from His Word at point A in our lives, and that it will be fulfilled at a moment of time at point B in our life. But most of our life is lived between the giving of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise, between those two points. And that is exactly the point that we find ourselves in in looking at Paul. It's the place that Paul found himself in. He'd been given a promise by God himself. In, Luke, in Acts chapter 23, the Lord spoke to him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, the, the promise is given to him in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness at Rome. And now all of these years between Jerusalem and Rome is the journey toward the fulfillment of that promise. And, and uh, so it is with our lives as well. And since so much of our lives constitute the journey, and because God does such incredible things in our lives on the path between those two points, between the, the point A where we start out and then the developing things within our lives so that we will move from point A, but then when we arrive at point B to have the necessary character uh, to be able to get there in exactly the spiritual condition that He wants us in, and because our lives are spent by and large in that very place in life, it's important to understand certain things uh, about the journey and while on the journey in order for us to maintain a spiritually healthy perspective and also to be influential for the kingdom of God while on the journey between those points. The first thing that I want us to recognize from this passage is to know that we will get from point A to point B related to God's promises. When He gives us one from His Word or personally at point A, no matter what happens on the journey, 
We ultimately get to point B, and you see it. We, went, we didn't ha don't have time to get into it this morning. It'll be a future study, but you notice further in chapter 28, uh, verse 16. Now, when we had come to Rome, Paul got to point B. He got to Rome. But then notice the latter part of verse 14, where it declares, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days, and then significantly, and so we went toward Rome. And I want you to notice that single word, so. That so is the description of Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome. He got to Rome, but the journey involved a lot of so. It involved a lot of difficulty, a lot of, and sometimes in our minds we don't think that that can be possible. All of life is leaving one destination and getting, in, you know, to the other, and that, that it's not all involved. It involves a lot of so. The second thing I want us to notice is that the passage reminds us once again that even no matter how much we love God, no matter how much we obey God, no matter how obedient we are being to His call upon our lives, that these kind of storms and shipwreck and snake bites can be a part of our lives. As Christians, we are not exempt from uh, these kind of, of things, and, 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 and they happen to us even when we're absolutely right with God. And the reason that I state it, even though most of us have heard it many, many times, and we know it to be a truth, but I don't think we can say it too often, because it does something important in me when I hear it, because I do have within my flesh and I have to fight it related to my own circumstances, related to my own life. I do have this idea, this strong sense that, that if I am good in my walk with the Lord, I'm an obedient Christian, I'm a serving Christian, that somehow it means that I will be able to miss all of these th kind of things in life. And I don't know where the idea comes from, but I know it's very widespread beyond me, and it's something that locks onto us. This idea that if I live for God and I obey God, that somehow life is to be relatively easy in the grand scheme uh, of, of things. But if, if I don't know that that isn't true, that these things do come into the life of a Christian, if I bring that expectation uh, to the Christian life, I'm going to be setting myself up for very severe shock as a Christian and probably going to be mightily stumbled in my faith and stumbled by the storm and the shipwreck and the snake bite, not because I possess a a strong, solid, biblical understanding of the Christian life as it's described in the Scripture, but because I'm operating under an unbiblical expectations that I'm bringing to my Christian life. Jesus declared to Christians, these things I've spoken unto you, personalize it, to you, that in me you might have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And we also stop to remember that Jesus lived a perfect life and had an anything but easy life. And he reminded us that a servant is not greater than his master in this regard. And it's a good reminder, I think, because usually seasons in, in like this that we come and encounter in life, especially when they come one upon another upon another, we say, okay, Lord, I get the storm thing, but did we really need the shipwreck? And okay, Lord, I get the shipwreck, but did we really need for the bow to get stuck in the sandbar and to be so far offshore to make our way and have the ship that I was uh, trusting in at the moment to be dismantled uh, right from under me? Okay, Lord, I get the sandbar thing, but was it really necessary for me to then be bitten by a snake? But then why the passage that we look at this morning is so important in all of this is then we see that Paul would have never gained the attention of the Maltese people had he not gone through all of those things and without also being snake-bitten. 
It was that that got their attention. It was that that differentiated him from the other 276 and ultimately gave him access to Publius's father and then used by God to heal him and then to impact the entire island for the Lord. Which brings us to our third application, and that is when we find ourselves in these kind of circumstances, when we feel absolutely snake bit, that we are under some kind of a curse, to then to stop and ask ourselves, is this great trial that I find myself in putting me into contact with people who are in need of an encouragement that only a Christian can bring, or in need of uh, hearing the gospel because they've never heard it before? Who, who has come into my life as a result of this great shipwreck that I know I will never see again once this shipwreck and this storm is over? And then to stop in the middle of the storm, in a moment again of, of perspective coming into our lives, and to realize that maybe part of all of this has something to do with them. And it's an important thing to, uh, to have uh, bring perspective to us. I certainly, when I got diagnosed with cancer, there's something about hearing cancer in a doctor's appointment. I mean, there is a veil you walk through, when that, and then they say incurable, and, and so forth. And, and so you begin, it puts you into a whole world that until that happens, you don't even know exists. And so as I find myself in the middle of this storm and trying to maintain perspective in the midst of it and all of the various hats that I wear in life, and then things begin to calm down and some of the perspective begins to come and then to finally reach a place where I ask myself, who is coming into my life as a result of this that I would never have contact with, not in a hundred years? And when every three months I make my way to Stanford, and I see those medical professionals, all of whom I've witnessed to and shared or broached spiritual subjects with them in terms of the Lord or other people that are there that are coming in for treatment and to realize that part of this storm is because it's given me an audience and it's given me a group of people access to them that I would not otherwise have. And by the way, I'm doing very, very well. Thank you for your prayers and the grace of God related to that. But it's a, it's a healthy thing to have my focus taken off of the trial into the bigger picture of, of helping others and what is going on uh, around me. And fourth, and I close very quickly with these, uh, these two points here, I think it's important to be reminded of what we know but we so often lose sight of, that our lives as Christians are always being closely watched by other people. Sometimes it's to find fault with us. Sometimes it's to find hope or meaning as they watch our lives. Sometimes people are looking uh, for an example. But once, by and large in this culture, once people know that we're Christians, they begin to watch us. They begin to watch uh, our lives. And not only are our lives closely watched, but our lives are never more closely watched when those, than when those same people know that we are a Christian, but we find ourselves now in the midst of some great trial or some great storm. Or they watch our lives and see an entire series of storms hit our life. The storm, the shipwreck, uh, the snake bite, one on top uh, of the other. And in the midst of, uh, of a great trial, I think if you're anything like me, my first and foremost, and, and oftentimes the only thing initially that I can think about is simply surviving the trial and just getting through this, somehow managing it and getting to the other side of it, and the sooner the, the better. But God knows what we so often lose sight of in the middle of the storm and when survival is our only focus. He knows that we love him. He knows that we love people. He knows that we love the gospel. We love his truth. We love the opportunity to be a witness to him. 
and he knows we will survive the trial, and he knows at that moment in time the single great thing that will become the most important to us of all, and that is the great concern of what kind of a witness was I to God, to the Christian faith, to his promises? How did I represent all of that in the midst of the storm that I was in? And so often we don't think about that moment that's coming, the aftermath of it, but God works in a way that keeps us conscious of, of all of that. And as hard as it can be to be aware of this dynamic in terms of continuing to be an example, it just helped me mightily in storms that I've been in where I can't make heads or tails of it. I can't make any sense of it at all. And somebody might remind me and say, uh, steady on with the Lord. Keep walking with him. Keep going in your calling because people are watching you and you don't realize it. And it does our hearts good to realize it. It brings a meaning to a storm that we might not otherwise understand yet related to our lives. And as hard as it can be to be aware of this dynamic in the midst of a great trial, it's important to do so because we will want to, and God knows it to be true, we will want to ultimately enjoy the afterglow of not only surviving the trial, but also allowing others to see the glory of God in our lives in the midst of that trial, to see His God-given faithfulness, that he, the grace that He gave us to obey His Word, to hold on to His promises, to keep our gaze upon Him in the midst of all of it. And I think it's also important to remember the flip side of this, that the more difficult the storms we find ourselves in in life, or the greater the storms that we have been through in life as Christians, the greater weight our Word will have in encouraging others in their storms as well, and the greater weight that people will give to our Christian witness and to our Christian faith. And that's very encouraging to realize. And finally, I close with this, that it is important to remember, and filling out Mr. Emerson's quote a little bit, that life is a journey, but it isn't merely a journey. It also ends at a destination. And it always does, it, 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 it always does it, it, the heart of a storm tossed Christian good, I think, to remember that as by His grace we continue to walk faithfully with God through these storms, that there is a well done on the other side of this. Uh, there is a, a honoring and, and an honorous kind of, it's not a right word, but whatever it would be in entering into heaven. And that's important to realize too in the midst of these kind of of trials that we find ourselves in the middle of, that at the end of this, as we walk with God and as we stay faithful in the midst of these storms and don't run back to the world and so forth, but we endure them and learn what, you know, so often can only be learned in those circumstances to realize that from the very mouth of Jesus, somewhere down along the line, there's going to be a well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And I've entitled this sermon, I think it's Storms, Shipwreck, Snake-Bitten, and Honor, because honor always follows this progression when these things happen in our lives in God's will, and they do happen. And to stop and to realize in the midst of a trial, and it does something very good in our hearts, trials of this magnitude, and to say to myself or to say to ourselves, God, somehow the going through of this great storm and shipwreck and snakebite and trial, somehow this must be a necessary part of me one day hearing well done from you. And if it is a necessary part of that one day being a part of my future, then it is worth enduring. I remember one time, there was a, years ago in our church, there was a, a, a 
a family that attended, and then their entryway to their house was this poster, and it was a poster of Jesus, but you couldn't see his face, but you knew it was Jesus. And, and the poster read, Jesus speaking, I never said it would be easy. I told you it would be worth it. And Jesus says just as much when he will ultimately declare to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And so when these seasons of trial come into our lives, it's been helpful to realize that very often is a part, an investment in that day that is a part of each of our futures as Christians. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the bookends that the sermon last week and this week really are to this great subject of these kind of storms and trials and shipwreck and, and snake-bitten. The wonderful encouragement that one day, Lord, we will survive each and every one of them in this life and then survive the storm that is life itself and enter into heaven, and we thank you for Jesus for that promise and that surety. But then, Lord, you so wonderfully in your word, I'm in awe of your word, we all are. You know that it isn't just enough to survive the trial, but that also to be able to one day come on the other side of it and to maintain some perspective in the midst of it so that when the trial is over, as all trials are, we can look back, Lord, with a joy and a satisfaction that we represented you and we held on to your promises, Lord, and that we did the best that we could for people to see you and your kingdom in our lives. And we thank you for the encouragement on that front that this morning's time in your word provides to us. We pray that you would weld the two great truths together, Lord, and make them a great anchor in each of our lives as we continue our journey through this life and for us as Christians ultimately to heaven. Thank you for the immense beauty, Lord, and the perfection of the wisdom of your word this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.